1: From the Fox News Radio studios in New York City, giving you opinions and facts with a positive approach, it's Brian Kilmead. Hi,
2: everyone. Brian Kilmead here. Uh, we're going to talk to Miranda and Devine in a little while, and Miranda Devine is somebody I think you're going to hear from. You're not going to believe the new rules and restrictions on Hollywood now. If they want to be recommended or looked at or evaluated uh, to get best picture, best actor, best everything, there now is essentially demands of you have to be a certain amount of LBGTQ people on there, a certain amount of uh, minorities, those who struggle. You're not going to believe these new sanctions and requirements in Hollywood. Good luck with that. I always thought it was the best person gets it, and I always thought that was one thing pure about Hollywood. If you're a great actor that can fill up a a theater, you're going to get the job. If you work hard, you know your copy, you're going to get the job. And now they're going to put in all this equal opportunity things in it, and or you don't get best picture, which means a lot of money and a lot of prestige. Miranda Devine on that. She did a great column in the New York Post on that. Uh, and we'll discuss it. one 408 7669 We have a lot to discuss today. Of course, football starts tonight. That's the fun stuff. Uh, the other stuff that's going to be happening, too. Uh, there's going to be a lot of racial justice things with the NFL. I'm getting looking at my email. A lot of you are upset by that. So uh, I do want to get to your calls, especially with this Bob Woodward book out and with Joe Biden trying to feast on it. Every time a Woodward book comes out, it seems like no president's happy. Today is no exception. Let's get to the big three.
1: Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. American manufacturing is the old expression you
3: heard your grandpop say, your grandmother, was the arsenal of democracy in World War II. Well, guess what? It's going to be part of the engine of American prosperity
2: now. Not sure what he said, but I know he stole it from Trump. On the trail, in front of almost no one, Biden stumbles his way through a job speech in Michigan with a theme stolen from President's 2016 and 2020 platform. Make it in America. The problem, Joe, uh, is Trump came up with that already. His track record shows he has no ability or intent To bring manufacturing back to America after 47 years, and with a reputation of plagiarism and exaggeration, is it smart
4: to be adopting the president's doctrine? Number two. Come to Chinatown, here we are, we're again careful, safe, and come join us.
2: Yeah, come join us. Uh, That was Nancy Pelosi in March, the reality and timeline on this virus in America we're still dealing with now. Why the while the press is hyperventilating, we will go over the exactly what was done and not done leading up to today as Bob Woodward come, Bob Woodward's book comes out.
5: Number one. Well I think Bob really to be honest with sure, you Sure, I want you to I be. wanted to uh, I wanted to always play it down. I still like playing it down. Yes sir. Because I don't want to create a panic.
2: Woodward strikes again. President Trump spends nine hours, 18 separate interviews with Bob Woodward, and will now spend the next few days qualifying what's on the pages and the recordings we'll go over, as well as the 60-minute interview on Sunday and the follow-up interviews after that. From the nuclear attack plans to the COVID action, we'll give you all sides. And, you know, I'm not thrilled the President of the United States going over this top-secret nuclear plan with Bob Woodward the problem I understand, I've interviewed him a few times, but they say that when he uses a subject, he makes you feel as though you're on his side. Whether you're a president, powerful, or a new president like President Obama, you feel like, okay, I'm, look, I'm a little wary, but this guy likes me. Well, it turns out he wants a big-selling book and whatever it takes. Donald Trump did not cooperate with his last book, Fear, and it was not good. Fear had very little new information in it. So the president wasn't happy with the book Fear, and he also looked up to Bob Woodward, kind of liked him, you know, he kind of grew up with Bob Woodward. So this time, on the urging of Senator Lindsey Graham reportedly, he said, look, he's going to write the book anyway. You might as well cooperate. I don't think anyone thought he was going to spend nine hours over the course of months with Bob Woodward. To me, that's just not smart at all. But it shows the confidence the president has in his ability uh, to win people over. Now, some of this stuff I don't have a problem with. I actually don't have a problem with the president describing the virus and how he wanted to handle it. You know, JFK was somebody, I'm going to tell the whole country we're on the brinksmanship with Cuba and Khrushchev and the world could end and that's it. And FDR says, don't worry about it. We're going to come back even though we had no army. uh, We had no tanks. We had no armament. And we just got bombed in Pearl Harbor. George Bush, we remember after 9-11, it seems like yesterday, we're coming up on 19 years now. He says, don't worry, they're all going to hear us then. We watched a president get his footing, uh, and we saw the disjointedness early. For the president of the United States, we're getting hit with a pandemic that there is no, uh, no reservoir of experience for. He was reassured by the CDC. We have a test. No one had died. And here's the president talking about this to Bob Woodward uh, in tapes. And the president knew he was being taped the entire time, and I think Woodward taped absolutely uh, everything. So here is uh, the president, uh, the president talking to Bob Woodward. Uh, so let's listen.
6: It's also more deadly than your, you know, your even your strenuous flus. You know, people don't realize we lose twenty five thousand, thirty thousand people a year here. Who, who would ever think that, right?
5: I know. It's, I mean, much it's pretty forgotten. amazing.
6: And uh, then I say, "Well, is that able the to same do?
5: thing?" For this is
6: more president. deadly. This is five per, you know. This is five percent versus one percent and less than one percent. You know. So, this is deadly stuff.
2: So that's the book. It's in rage, right? So he's describing this in March, and he's saying this is deadly, more deadly. And he says, "I choose not to alarm everybody about this." Cut to.
5: Well, I think Bob. Really, to be honest with sure, you. Sure, I want you. To I be. wanted to. Uh, I wanted to always play it down. I still like playing it down. Yes, sir. Because I don't want to create a panic.
2: That's his approach. Now, oh, in this book, Anthony Fauci evidently uh, mocks the president's to somebody else uh, attention span. But John Roberts talked to Anthony Fauci last night, and everyone's saying, well, the president let people die because he waited so long. Let me just remind you what the president did on the 31st of January. He puts out a proclamation stopping flights in from China. Also on the 31st of January, Joe Biden stated this is no time for Donald Trump's record of hysteria and xenophobia, hysterical xenophobia and fear mongering to lead the way instead of science. He told that to Reuters. The president is this to me is not earth shattering. Anthony Fauci cut three.
5: I didn't get any sense that he was distorting anything. I mean, in my discussions with him, they were always straightforward about the the concerns that we had. We related that to him. And uh, when he would go out, I'd hear him discussing the same sort of things.
2: So Fauci says disparaging things about the president, but went to bat for him last night. He says, I don't remember saying this. In every Bob Woodward book, there's this dicey gray area with a subject or subjects. So he'll have authenticity. This really happened. This really happened. And there's always this area that people are saying, I never said that. I'm thinking about William Casey, who I did a feature with on Fox Nation, to of his family, that swears to this day there was no Bob Woodward visit to the hospital room. You know, in the Obama book and Bush book, there are things that happen with these unnamed sources that make people say, wait a second, I, I, don't, I didn't say that. I don't know who could have possibly been in the room at that time. Maybe this is one of those things, because he doesn't have Fauci saying directly, the president doesn't you know, pay attention to anything I say. Now, the critics of Bob Woodward actually say this. This is how insane this is. They said, Bob, he was playing down a virus that killed 180,000 Americans. Why didn't you bring that to press? And he said, number one, I'm not working for the Washington Post. I'm doing a book. Uh, Number two is, and his critics, this actually, to me, makes the president look good. He goes, critics wanted me to speak out. He goes, keep in mind, Trump is downplaying this, and there was no panic. And there was no panic. Anthony Fauci said there was no reason to change your daily habits. So why do I think that the president is letting us get slammed by a virus when the scientists are saying the same same exact thing as the president? And that's what the president said last night. So this book is going to come out. There's going to be other things that are going to swamp this. But usually the biggest news is the early news. There's other news uh, coming out right now. Uh, Bob Woodward, uh, when it comes to race, uh, when it comes to running his administration, Woodward have evidently concludes the president is not fit for the job. Much like a lot of people and a lot of his critics not fit for the job. They said George Bush was too dumb to get the job. His father didn't have it. He wouldn't deserve it. Uh, Bill Clinton, obviously his behavior, he wasn't fit for the job. Dereliction of Duty was talked about, a book first written uh, during the Kennedy years. LBJ, they said he got overwhelmed by the job. Everyone's going to have an opinion. And for Bob Woodward to be critical in his second book like he was in his first book, to me, is not big news. But Joe Biden sees an opportunity here. Cut 11.
7: What's your response to this news about what he was telling Bob Woodward on February 7th?
3: It's disgusting. We learned this on the day that 100 returned 100 90,000 Americans dead, and he knew this? I understand he had just gotten off the phone when he did the first interview with Woodward. he just gotten off the phone with Xi Jinping, where he's praising Xi Jinping about transparency, and this is nothing to worry about, and this is going to go away like a miracle. Listen,
2: he thought he was being transparent, and he wasn't, all right? This guy thought that China was going to be a great uh, member of the world community. But I told you what Joe Biden said on the 31st. The American people need to have a president he can trust. No xenophobia, no hysteria. That's what he said. Now, Jake Tapper was referring to an interview the president did on the 7th with Bob Woodward. But listen to Joe Biden, cut 17, on February 28th.
3: I want to talk a moment about the coronavirus. And uh, I just wanted to say a few things to set the record straight. Barack and I, uh, when we were as president and vice president, uh, We took on the virus that was threatening all of Africa and uh, and the rest of the world. And we set up a mechanism that uh, that worked. But I want to take a moment to say it's not a time to panic about coronavirus. But coronavirus is a serious public health challenge.
2: Okay, serious challenge. Don't panic. What's the president saying? Don't panic. February 7th. Three weeks later, he saying not to panic. On the 31st, not one American had died. The CDC assures the president, we have a test for this, is going to keep it in California. I had no idea and still to me has not been fully flushed out how this virus got to Europe and when the Europeans came to visit places like New York and Boston, how it got here to this day. But you want the president who spent his life in business to be able to disseminate about a pandemic the likes of which we haven't seen for over 100 years. So he's not the only one not panicking. Guess who else is not panicking? Nancy Pelosi, February 24th.
4: Listen to her message in San Francisco, cut 18. Come to Chinatown. Here we are. We're, again, careful, safe, and come join us. Andrew Cuomo, February
2: 2nd. So, is it time to panic? Constant contact with Anthony Fauci, by the way. Cut 19.
3: Precaution is always the best practice. Preparedness is always the best practice. And that's what we do here in New York. At the same time, we have to keep this in perspective. There is no reason to panic.
2: Okay. What is the difference between what the president did and that? Now, if you want to go back and said we should have had the president should have taken over and said, I'm just worried about a pandemic. I want to make sure we have PPE. I want to make sure we have ventilators. I want to make sure these states are backed up. Okay, that would have been interesting. John Bolton, one of the things he did is take the chemical, the biological warfare division and put it with the um, and put it with the pandemic division. He merged it together. He said they do in redundancy things. You could say that maybe the president should have come down on a national security advisor about a pandemic we haven't seen for 118 years. So what would have would helped the administration? It would have helped if, number one, didn't do the interviews. Number two, if they were on the call, why, you know, have your media department, your, your press department on the call. Number two, say, I'm going to tape this too, Bob. And if Bob Woodward can tape it, why can't the president tape it? So at least his staff today could be going through all the tapes. And they're not going to be blindsided about 60 minutes. And believe me, they want to blindside and catch the president flat-footed. Everybody wants the president, except for you guys, to lose. Some of you are still undecided. But they're not undecided in Washington and New York and Los Angeles. They decided he's not worthy of the job. And that's what you got to decide. I mean, if you want to get the Atlantic magazine off the front page and talk about uh, suckers and losers, uh, this did it. If you want to ignore Michael Cohen and his attack on the Trump family, this did it. Good luck getting oxygen. One eight six six four zero eight seven six six nine. Meanwhile, the president goes to North Carolina, packs the place. He goes to Jupiter, Florida, packs the place. He's going to. He is going to uh, Michigan today. Uh, all states he's got to win. You listen to the Brian Kilmeade show. I know you have a lot to say. I know you heard a lot of other people uh, basically tearing up with anger. Uh, don't don't fall for it. Uh, we put it in perspective. Back in a moment
1: holding our politicians feet to the fire no matter who they are that's brian kilmeade
0: this episode is brought to you by shopify do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real pos you need shopify for retail from accepting payments to managing inventory shopify pos has everything you need to sell in person Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
2: As many of you know from your own life experiences, a life in so-called blue-collar work is something to be proud of. It is very rewarding to work that has impact on your friends, your neighbors, and your family's lives. Great successes can be had in the blue-collar career. There's no degree requirement for achieving comfort, peace, and freedom.
1: Breaking news, unique opinions. Hear it all on The Brian Kilmeade Show.
5: Do you think there is systematic or institutional racism in this country?
6: Well, I think there is everywhere. I think
5: probably less here than most places or less here than many places. Okay, but is it here in a way that it has an impact on people's lives? I think it is,
6: and it's unfortunate, but I think it is.
2: There's nothing wrong with anything about that statement about uh, institutional racism. I think it is. It's a lot better here. Absolutely. I think most Americans agree with that. And I was expecting something more extreme. And believe me, if he said something extremely unorthodox or unacceptable about race, you wouldn't even have heard anything about the coronavirus. It would have been the number one thing to try to take him down. But he went on a little bit more about race Did to Bob Woodward. Again, it's all uh, tape. Cut eight.
5: Do you have any sense that that privilege has isolated and put you in a cave to a certain extent as it put me and I think lots of white privileged people in a cave and that we have to work our way out of it to understand uh, the anger and the pain particularly black people feel in this country.
6: Do you no, to... you you really drank the cooler, didn't you?
5: You listen to you. Wow. No, I don't feel that at all.
2: So, I mean, he does sound uh, like uh, uh, Bob Woodward not known necessarily to be a liberal, but it does sound like a liberal perspective. That's not how the president feels. I have no problem with that exchange at all. one uh 408 That first cut you heard was June 22nd. The next one was actually, early. Oh, the one you just heard was the Kool-Aid comment was June 19th. Now, Bob Woodward on 60 Minutes reaction reacts to what he got from this time he spent with the president cut 9
5: he was ridiculing me for reflecting The whole movement after George Floyd is
2: it's not ridiculing, pointing out there's a difference. You're on the phone for nine hours. You really think it's ridiculing. Richard's in Montreal, Canada. Hey, Richard.
6: Hi, Brian. What do you think about yeah, all this? Uh, yeah. uh Woodward, a lot of people are accusing Trump of being a mass murderer, but I speak to Dr. Zelenko. He thinks the people who lied about hydroxychloroquine, which he knows works, are the mass murderers, not President Trump, because President Trump was right about hydroxychloroquine. You just have to, you just have to speak to dozens and dozens of doctors who are treating patients all over the United States with this drug it work, and there's no doubt about it.
2: And it's very tough to get. Do you know you have to order it in Canada to get it now? Uh, People, even I know doctors trying to get it, they can't get it because it's so politicized because the president liked it. And for certain people, especially if you catch it early, combined with zinc and another uh, and vitamin D, it has shown a lot of success. But we're not allowed to do this because everything's politics, even medicine. We're going to come back, talk to Miranda Devine about politics and Hollywood.
8: New from the Fox News Podcasts Network.
9: My name is Kennedy and welcome to my podcast, which will I humbly say single-handedly save the world. You're
8: welcome. It's Kennedy saves the world. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.
1: The fastest three hours in radio. You're with Brian Kilmeade.
2: To ensure, quote, a more equitable representation of people of color and other minority groups, nominees in 2024 and beyond must meet at least two of these requirements. One of the four lead actors must be a racial minority, black, Asian, Hispanic, Middle Eastern, Native American, or Pacific Islander. At least 30% of all secondary roles must be a woman, a racial minority, LGBTQ, or an actor with a disability. The main storyline must focus on an underrepresented group, and at least two senior executives must be from a minority group. Are you kidding? This sounds like a board game from uh, Hasbro. This is how you have to make movies in order to have a chance at the best Oscar, uh, at an Oscar in the new Hollywood, the new woke Hollywood. Think about this. Imagine writing a, writing a, uh, writing a movie. With all these parameters in mind, these are creative people. They don't want parameters. And I thought one line from Christy Alley was great. Christy Alley came out when she saw this and said, well, it's like telling Picasso what to paint. Why would you do that? And she goes, well, at least she had the guts to come out and say it and be critical of it. Well, somebody who found all this out, broke it down for me this morning and alerted me to how serious and how what a joke this is, is Miranda Devine, New York Post columnist. Miranda, welcome back. Good morning Brian great to talk to you Brenda I'm I'm shocked at this uh in in the cast A if you want to be in the A category 30% of your cast has to be women or lgbtq or disabled wow so <laughs> someone's got to explain maybe you could be dyslexic does that qualify to put me in a leading role or do if i have a club foot might i be finally get famous Look, who would know? It is
10: just a joke. It really, I I read the press release about four times because it just seemed like parody. You know, it was the Sunday Night Live skit. It is just like something out of the Soviet bureaucracy from, you know, 50 years ago. It is just unbelievable that these people have got themselves into this trap. And it is a trap because you're not going to create great art from these kind of Edicts. Of course, you're not. It's just some sort of bureaucratized, authorized nonsense. And any artist worth their salt, like Kirstie Alley, is going to complain and not going to want to be part of this club. It's just, um, you know, any person with any common sense looks at that and says, you have lost your mind.
2: So you write in your column how many of these best pictures would actually qualify. For this category now, because of this new criteria, 1917, a World War One movie, I don't know, is that is that morally defensible? Not to everybody. Uh, Braveheart, how many people got killed? He got, he got drawn and quartered at the end. I didn't know if I saw somebody with a lisp or something wrong with them that would qualify them. Uh, Gone with the wind, we already know how terrible that one is. One flew over yeah. the cuckoo's nest, people think we're depicting mentally ill in a bad way. I mean, this is unbelievable. Hollywood started it, and now they have to live with it. It's political
10: correctness gone mad, and it's the, the old story get woke go broke because no one is going to want to watch these movies. They are going to be unbelievably awful. And, you know, already the Oscars is a joke. No one really watches it anymore. I used to love it. Now it's just, you know, you get a few tiny little morsels of something interesting, and the rest of it is just, uh, you know, Soviet agitprop. It's just doing the woke thing, every single thing that comes out of their mouths, The, the movies they make, many of them now flop. That's why they've gone back to doing reruns of remakes of old movies that that were successful in the old days. You hardly see anything that is original or creative coming out of Hollywood now. And that's why, for instance, what, what happened last year, which won Best Picture? It was Parasite. It was a Korean movie, not an American movie because, you, you know, American movie making, which was the... You know, Americans invented movie making. Americans colonized the minds of the planet with their beautiful movies, and um, and it was a great way of spreading the American way. But now, what are they spreading? Just politically correct mind
2: rotting nonsense. Sound of music. Too many white people it can't work. You also point out in a B cat. They point out in the B category. Uh, in a leadership position, director, producer, or writer, cinematography, you have to have at least two uh, minorities in those leadership positions. Uh, so, internships, I mean, it isn't so much uh, equal opportunity employer, this is really drilling down on storylines. And let's say you have a great producer-director with great synergy. Maybe it's Ben Affleck and Matt Damon in their 20s who, had, who wrote this great movie and, and rose to the fame they're still experiencing today. Would they qualify? They're too white. Brian, no, because they're white, they're male, they're
10: heterosexual, and they're cisgendered, which means they haven't had a sex change. So, you know, look, I'm a woman. I count in these categories. I don't consider myself a victim. I don't want to be given a quota to to get a leg up on anyone else. What this does is it actually cheapens the achievements of those people within those supposed victim identity categories who do make it on their own. Um, What you do is you, you empower and embolden the worst people, the people who are just chances and grifters and just want a free ride through life. And you end up destroying the products that you're supposedly helping. And the reason they've done this, the Academy, Hollywood, is because they have been cowed into submission by the whole BLM antifa bullying that we've seen the last three months across our country. And if if history tells us anything, it is that appeasement never works. It's like Winston Churchill said, you're feeding the crocodile in the hope that it eats you last.
2: The other thing, Miranda... And I can't speak to this directly, but movies to me seem to be the ultimate meritocracy. If you could sell at that theater, if you can sell a movie, if you can become that character, if you are easy to work with, you get jobs. If you get lucky, you go on enough auditions, you break through. But now they're changing that. They're putting their hand on the scale. And now the, the actors that want to put in their time, they go, wait a second. If I'm a white guy without a limp... Why am I bothering? And if I do get that job because I'm missing a finger at birth and I can be the disabled category that allows this movie to get the, to get a best picture, I don't want the job. Yeah. It, well, exactly.
10: You know, meritocracy, it's about working hard. Yeah. It's about making the most of your God-given talents. And why do you want to discriminate against someone who's doing that just because of the way they were born. People can't help being born, whatever colour, whatever race, whatever sexuality, whatever ethnicity, whatever they are. You know, I can't help being born a woman. You can't help being born a man. We just are what we are and you make what you can out of your life. And becoming an A-list actor does not come easy it doesn't get handed to these people on a silver platter as much as we would like to think that you know they they have had to work incredibly hard to get those jobs and it just guts anybody's sense of ambition to say well you're not going to get it because of your genetic makeup
2: Miranda you know the only place that probably it is who will put in the best player is sports how soon till sports says uh, not enough, uh, you know. Not enough black offensive linemen. Uh, not enough white wide receivers. I mean, is that would and is that going to infect sports, which is trying so very hard to be politically correct now? I, are we going to be talking about that in six months? Well, Brian,
10: you put your finger right on the hypocrisy. You know, there you have, you know, the NBA just running around lecturing us all being morally superior these you know multi-million dollar sportsmen and yet you couldn't get a more a less diverse group of people than basketballers you know and that why is that that is because they have an innate talent and they work hard at it and they want to do it so what will it do to sport if you now say, just like you say, that you have to have quotas yeah. to reflect the makeup of American society? So you'd have to have women, you'd have to have white people, um, short people, fat people, you know, disabled people. How's that going to work?
2: It's the same thing. This is what they wanted, and now it's all turned on them. Uh I think about Al Franken and the politically correct uh, clowns in Washington. (laughs) Next thing you know, it all turns on him. And all these other people caught it and get canceled because they tried to cancel everybody else. Hollywood (laughs) condescendingly looking down at the rest of the country, giving their speeches of sanctimonious speeches while they receive their trophy, are now in a situation where they're being examined with the same microscope. And I don't know if the pushback has to start there, but it's got to start somewhere perhaps miranda final thought it does fine maybe some very powerful directors and writers will say excuse me i can't live by this i don't have a theme to go with that or they're going to leave the academy and just start making movies
10: absolutely and look it's a classic example of the revolution always eats its own and you have to take a certain amount of delight in that i think
2: right I just know that Rocky III was the best Rocky and deserved some type of Oscar, <laughs> and I don't think it would have fit any of these categories. Um, Miranda Devine, <laughs> thanks so much.
10: Great to talk to you, Brian.
2: one 408 We're talking about the Bob Woodward book. We're also talking about facts from fiction, about the timeline of the coronavirus, how people are going to feast on this. Is this going to change any votes? I don't think so. Brian Kilmeade Show.
1: The talk show that's getting you talking. You're with Brian Kilmeade.
9: When I was in the Bush administration, Bob Woodward wrote, I think, four or five books, um, and we would alternate on one you wouldn't cooperate. Turned out bad. Next one, you'd cooperate. Still turned out bad. Third one, you just, you tried to figure out a way to handle it. The first Woodward book that came out, Rage, uh, it got a lot of negative press for President Bush. Of course, they overcame that. But all of that was anonymous sources, right? You kind of figured out who they were, but it was anonymous. So what do they decide to do this time? Why not have have the president himself talk to Bob Woodward and do it? Now, here's the thing. The fact that he does it on tape and that you hear the president saying that, that will be used a lot by his opponents.
2: Uh, that is uh, Dana Perino, obviously one of the Bush, but one of the books, "Bush at War," I thought was good, and Bob Woodward got blowback on that, and he comes back with another book that was bad, and obviously President Bush made very tough, controversial decisions from Iraq to Afghanistan to uh, Bin Laden escaping on down, and Katrina. So there were things out there. He was a consequential president, a great person, and I think he's going to be rated a lot higher. But meanwhile, we're in the middle of the Trump storm with Bob Woodward's second book on the president. And this book, the president cooperated with to the nth degree. We're talking about nine hours, 18 separate interviews. Uh, That's what I wanted to share with you. Also, keep in mind, there's another big story tonight. And it's a fun story, kind of. Football is back. The NFL is back. Kansas City against Houston. Two multi-hundred million dollar quarterbacks. But the other story is the social justice messaging that's going to be on the field. uh, And it's going to be with the Black National Anthem. And it's going to be kneeling in the door to the national anthem. And most people are writing me saying if they do it, I'm out. But if you look at the Washington Post poll today, it says six out of every ten Americans thinks athletes should show type of some type of um, social consciousness or protest during the national anthem. Forty three percent of Republicans are okay with it. Almost uh, 80 percent of Democrats are okay with it. And 60 percent of independents. Uh, Dee, listening in Ohio. Hey, Dee.
11: Oh, hi.
2: Hi. What's on your mind?
11: Oh, uh, Thank you for taking my call. Just short. I'm sure I'll flub this up. But I just wanted to point out, 72 years old, uh, worked for a Fortune 1000 company, retired after about 50 years, some college, high school, some college, married, couple kids, grandkids. And one of the things I wanted to say is, you know, from the very time I was uh, eligible to vote. I've always voted. I've always taken it seriously. I've always voted because people right. <clears throat> sacrificed their life for me to vote. Now, I listen at the issues. I listen at the candidates, what the candidates say, not interpretations from someone else. And I go in and I vote. It's just that simple. Everybody I know does it that way. So I get a little concerned when I hear like a lot of the newscasters and commentators always seem to feel like when black people vote, we don't know what we're doing. We have to be led. We have to be told. We have to be told what's been done for us. And I don't really think that's the case. I just think we have one vote. We go out and we vote.
2: Right. Uh, I think that that should be the case. You should make any politician earn your vote, Uh, the Hispanic vote. the Asian vote. Make them earn it and then make them accountable. And this is why I was so offended and so many people were offended. And you tell me if if you were when Vice President Biden, they won't let him do this anymore, almost never, have an off, you know, an unscripted conversation with somebody. And here is uh, uh, Charmaine, the God. He's a great uh, morning show host, very successful. And he's on with the vice president. Listen to this.
3: Listen, you got to come see us when you come to New York, VP Biden. I will. It's a long way until November. We got more questions. You got more questions. But I tell you, if you have a problem figuring out whether you're for me or Trump, and you ain't black.
2: What was your reaction to that?
11: Uh, I don't have a reaction to that. Because, you know, the thing about it is I'm not sitting here listening to the radio or listening to this every day. No no one's going to determine what my vote is but me. And so, you know, some of the same things that he says, You know are are not quite right but you know i feel the same way about our president every day i'm waiting to hear uh, some things that i'm not hearing so no i'm you know would you like to
2: hear the president say d what would you like to what are you hoping uh, to hear
11: well i i really do think that he's a divider i really do i and i mean it's his background the way he was raised the things that he's done you know that's the way he lives his life and that's the way we all do so that's his life and that's the way he gets to live it and it's hard to me for him to try to govern a bunch of uh, 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 a place like the United States where we're so diverse and there's so many different things going on so and in in my voting i have voted republican i voted for the for both bush uh because that was what I thought was right at the time, you know, I voted for Barack Obama. That's what I thought was right at the time. uh you know right now i will probably i will vote for Biden because I think that that's better at the time, but none of them are hundred percent. Nobody is hundred percent right yeah, yeah. And, I, and you know, but again, i'm gonna listen to them and what they have to say and watch the and debates
2: Steve. Vote. I appreciate your insight drew w o k v in Florida Jacksonville drew,
11: hi, Brian. Uh, I just wanted to talk
7: about the discrimination that Hollywood Do you believe is this? portraying. You know, it's, it's unfair that they're turning the country around, making them discriminate against white people now. why? I thought we were trying to grow out of discrimination. Why <laughs> is it that it's okay to discriminate against white people now? And why is it they don't talk about the white people who are killed by police every single day when they talk about a black person being killed by police they should be saying george floyd was killed today and so is john smith by this person in minnesota and you know why aren't they talking about everybody and not just the black people
2: i know drew i think we got to get through this election for people to start coming together uh right now people getting the most clicks the most interest when they say something extreme uh and right now that feeds into the protests and the fury being fair and balanced and intellectual and going to the think tank atmosphere doesn't sell these days, but it sells here. Always love different points of view. Hey, go to com. You can stream the show anytime. You can listen to it on iTunes as a podcast, on Spotify as a podcast, on iHeart as a podcast. And, um, and we can always always get your feedback on BrianKilmead.com. Don't move.
8: Get this and all your favorite Fox News podcasts ad-free on Apple Podcasts with Fox News Podcasts Plus. Just go to foxnewspodcasts.com for all the details.
1: Live from the Fox News radio studios in New York City, fresh off the set of Fox & Friends, it's America's receptive voice, Brian Kilmeade.
2: Thanks so much for listening, everyone. It's the Brian Kill Me Show. This hour, we're going to be joined by Byron York. Got a brand new book called Obsession. Time to add another chapter, Byron, because it's the, the subtitle tells the story inside the Washington establishment's never-ending war on Trump. Uh, the latest salvo fired by legendary Bob Woodward, uh, almost self-inflicted. And Laura Curran will join us, too. Nassau County Executive, Nassau County, New York. Uh, she's trying like I'm trying. In order to let kids have the opportunity to play sports, 35 states are allowing it. Connecticut is not. Parts of New York, like Suffolk County, are. And what I'm trying to say is everyone can relate to this, whether you're a grandparent listening to me, whether you're a parent listening to me, whether you're a coach listening to me, whether you're a kid in a car listening, in eighth grade or twelfth grade, you have an option, you just want an option to play sports. Find out what the protocol is. Tell me what it takes and let these kids get in the field. They're never going to be seniors again, never going to be juniors again. It's not like it's the NFL or baseball where you could say, well, they'll be back next year. No, they're not. Nothing will be the same. And this is a window of opportunity. And I don't care if you're going to Ohio State. It doesn't matter to me if you're going to USC. USC. It is all about having that experience. First off the bench, never get off the bench. Go Just trying to compete in volleyball or revenue sport uh, like football. Just give the kids the opportunity, and they're being robbed of that now. She's going to be joining us shortly. But right now, there's so much else going on. The president of the United States is going to be in Michigan today. The vice president was there yesterday. But let's get to the big three.
1: Now with the stories you need to, to know, know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three.
3: American Manufacturing. The old expression you heard your grandpop say, grandmother, was the arsenal of democracy in World War II. Well, guess what?
2: It's going to be part of the engine of American prosperity now. On the trail, in front of almost no one, Joe Biden stumbled his way through a job speech in Michigan with a theme stolen from President Trump. His track record shows he has no ability to bring jobs back to this country. Not a willingness either with the WTO and NAFTA on his resume. Plus, if you're guilty of plagiarizing, why would you steal the president's theme and just remind everyone why why you fell apart in your other two presidential runs?
4: Number two. Come to Chinatown. Here we are. We're, again, careful, safe, and come join us. Such a smooth
2: speaker. Uh, that is... Nancy Pelosi talking to us in February with the coronavirus raging, not yet on our shores, not yet taking a death, uh, taking any American lives, the reality and timeline of the virus, why the press hyperventilates. I want to go over exactly what was said and what wasn't said in those months leading up to where we are today with this virus.
4: Number
5: one. Well, I think, Bob, really, to be honest with you, sure, I, want you to I be- wanted to... Uh, I wanted to always play it down. I still like playing it down. Yes, sir. Because I don't want to create a panic. All right.
2: uh, Bob Woodward is talking to the president of the United States for nine hours, 18 interviews. With Bob Woodward, we'll we'll now spend the next few days going over what he found out and what he recorded. We all know he does hit books on presidents. Uh, Sometimes they're fair. Sometimes they're viewed as unfair. A lot of this is on tape. To me, it's a headache the president doesn't need, his staff doesn't know about, they didn't even get a copy of the tapes, and 60 Minutes is coming up and the book drops on Tuesday, and he's going to have nonstop revelations. The biggest one usually comes out first to get everybody's attention. His last book was terrible. It's called Fear. It's got nothing new in it. It's talked about the president and his style, but this one's got Mattis ripping the president as unfed and uh, former Senator Coats, former uh, DNI director Coates saying he thinks Putin has something on him. Anthony Fauci saying he doesn't have much of an attention span. But for the president of the United States, he doesn't care about all that. He knows who he brings to the table. He thinks he's doing a good job and he wants four more years. Here's a little of what the president's talking about. And you're going to hear, I'm going to play him back to back. But this is the thing. People are saying oh, the president knew how bad this virus was, didn't tell anyone. That is such a simpleton way to approach this. Cut one.
6: It's also more deadly than your, you know, your even your strenuous flus. You know, people don't realize we lose twenty five thousand, thirty thousand people a year here. Who would ever think that, right?
5: I know. It's, I mean, much it's pretty forgotten. amazing.
6: And uh, then I say, "Well, is that the same thing?"
5: For this is more
6: friend. deadly. This is five per. You know, this is five percent versus one percent and less than one percent. So it's serious. You know? So. This is deadly stuff.
2: So it's serious. And guess what? The president, that was uh, the president on the 7th, okay, of uh, February. All right. Seems like 10 years ago, but yes. Now on the 31st, you know what the president did? Uh, the president, uh, gave, in, according to, sent out a proclamation. Uh, Given the importance of protecting persons with the United States from the threat of this harmful communicable disease, I have determined that it's in the interest of the U.S. to take action to restrict and suspend entry into the United States immigrants and non-immigrants of all aliens who were physically present in China, excluding uh, the special administration regions of Hong Kong. Hmm. It sounds like he's taking action while not panicking the public. Cut to.
5: Well, I think, Bob, really, to be honest with you. Sure, I want you to I wanted to, uh, I wanted to always play it down. I still like playing it down. Yes. sir. Because I don't want to create a panic.
2: So right away, Joe Biden says he lied. He didn't tell us the truth. Now, maybe in retrospect, you want to hear the president of the United States saying, listen, you know that virus coming our way? I know I told you, you heard that H1N1 was going to be bad. You heard the swine flu was going to be bad. You heard that Ebola was going to be bad. It didn't really affect anyone. But I just heard this information, and I want to share it with you. Serious flu. It's coming here from China. Now, we didn't even know anything about it then. We thought we knew a lot about it. We didn't. There might have been a case where Wuhan didn't tell Beijing all there is about it. I'm not sure because we can't touch the WHO. You know who knew most about it? Taiwan. They were trying to figure it out by sending their own people in there covertly. So we're not really sure. But if the president did that in the middle of this thing called impeachment, would it have been called a major distraction? So when the president said that, Joe Biden, on the same day when when the president put out that proclamation stopping China from coming here, you know what Joe Biden said? Joe Biden's just a little bit critical. And as we do a flashback, Joe Biden let everybody know how he felt about the president's move. Cut 16.
3: The American people need to have a president who they can trust what he says about it. That he is going to act rationally about it. This is no time... For Donald Trump's record of hysteria, xenophobia, hysterical xenophobia to uh, and fear mongering to lead
2: the way instead of science. Hmm. Doesn't sound like Joe Biden is stepping up to the plate. It sounds like Joe Biden is ridiculing the president for stepping up to the plate, but not panicking the public. Woodward goes on in his book and in these tapes to ask the president a myriad of questions, but what my obviously Bob Woodward's great at is getting people to feel so comfortable, they feel like they're almost talking to a friend that's going to tell their side of the story in his own way, in his brilliant way of piecing together a storyline as if he was there. Now, should you sit down with Bob Woodward? Met Mick Mulvaney was the chief of staff then. Mark Meadows is now. Cut 22
5: his access to the White House is probably uh, uh, something that I would not have recommended uh, had I been in the the chief of staff role very early on.
2: But it's the typical thing that the president does. He he believes that he has nothing to hide. That's the great thing about him is is that he's willing to talk to anybody about any subject, no matter
3: how difficult. He's probably given more interviews than any president in modern history. And it's all about making sure that the American people stay informed. And whether you like it or not,
5: he's willing to answer the difficult
2: question, and along the way, the New York Times. When the president is acting without panicking, the New York Times writes this: He called the they called the president's travel restrictions drastic and described in ap- uh, uh, apocalyptic uh, apocalyptic apolyp- uh, apocalyptic terms the damage to the economy that Trump's order portended in their view. So when you restrict travel from China, your number one economic partner, like it or not. It hurts the economy. And he did it. The travel disruption sent shockwaves to the stock market, rattled uh, industries that depend on the flow of goods and people from the world's two largest economies. Planning was upended for companies across a vast global supply chain from Apple to John Deere, the tractor company. When we come back, we'll discuss more on this. So... Can you blame the president for not wanting to blow up a trade agreement that it took three years to make? Can you blame the president for not wanting to destroy our economy and all these lives from the smallest sporting goods shop to the biggest restaurant? I can't, especially when he knows his critics would say this is all about wagging the dog because of impeachment, number one. And number two, because critics would say nobody else stopped the country for the virus. And at this point, not one life has been lost. That would change when we come back. The virus effects. Going to school? Absolutely. And playing sports? Depending on where you are. Laura, Car- Laura Curran, the Nassau County executive in New York, will join us to talk about how she wants to get kids back on the field.
1: Challenging conventional thought and wisdom. You're with Brian
8: Kilmeade. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, I'm Ben Domenech, publisher of the Federalist, and I'm inviting you to join a new conversation with the smartest thinkers out there about the country and where we're going. Subscribe to the Ben Domenech podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. He's so busy,
1: he'll make your head spin. It's Brian Kilmeade.
2: Through most of the through, uh, th- most of uh, the country, they're playing high school sports. In fact, 35 states overall in most counties. In fact, uh, the ones that aren't, uh, sometimes it's flat-out illogical. I, I interviewed four football players yesterday on Fox & Friends in Connecticut where the numbers are below 1% of positive tests, and they're told they can't play football because it's football. Other sports can play. In my town, even though we're national, we have WABC, WRCN listeners. In my county in particular – they're not playing sports. One mile away from my house, Suffolk County, they're playing high school sports. And what's the big deal, you say? Well, if you ever played sports, coach sports, ref sports, um, you would understand if you have a kid that age, when you play, no matter how many goals they score or touchdowns they catch, these are indelible memories they'll never forget and team bonds uh, that they'll, they'll oftentimes last a lifetime. That's not going to happen now. And the numbers are so low in this area, to me, it defies logic. And it also defies logic to Laura Kern. Under her leadership in Nassau County, as she's an executive here, they have driven the numbers down below 1% positivity, and it's been uh, gradually opening up for the last 100 days. But for some reason, they can't play sports. Uh, executive Curran, welcome uh, to The Brian Kilmeade Show.
12: Happy to be here. Thanks for having me.
2: So, Laura, what's it going to take for... Th- the high school, and the boards of education to listen to you and find a way to get these kids back on the field?
12: You know, I think we've proven in Nassau County that we can reopen, and we can reopen safely. We have indoor dining. It's been going very well. Uh, The gyms are open. The bowling alleys are open. Most businesses are open. There are still some that aren't, like movie theaters and catering halls. But the fact that we've driven down the numbers while reopening – tells me that we can resume fall sports, and by the way, kids have been playing sports throughout the summer, organized sports, that we can do it safely. So I'm, you know, I've been speaking with many superintendents, and i got to tell you, there's a full spectrum of opinions among superintendents. Some agree that we should be able to open. Others are a little more cautious. And I understand the safety concern. I understand that safety is always number one. But my argument is, I know that we can find a way to do it, and to do it safely.
2: So... Knowing that the window's closing and knowing that Suffolk County, and if you're national, it's a big county, is doing it right next door, is that showing the template and a way forward to the supervisors that are sitting on the sidelines?
12: You know, they, there is a little will room there. They said they will make a final determination by September 21st. I know that's coming up soon, but a final uh, determination in two weeks. They're going to look to see what happens with the numbers. Uh, and see if they can maybe rethink their decision. So I'm, I'm engaging them, I'm talking to them, and we'll see if, you know, we can persuade them. I mean, one concern I have is that kids who are not doing organized sports are not necessarily, especially teenagers, and I have my own, so I can say this, they're not necessarily going to be engaging in the safest activities. This could be safer than a lot of other things that they might be doing at that time.
2: That makes great sense. It's not like they're going home, thankfully, and just sitting back in their room. These kids are back together again. Most of the time it's responsible. I have a senior in high school now and and had uh, one in college that had their season canceled, but they're still practicing. And as you said, they're playing club sports. There's been a few rallies to get these kids back in the field by kids. Here's an example of one Calhoun high school freshman. It was heartbreaking to hear that we have to wait another, like, uh, four months, I believe, to start sports training again after a three-month quarantine and a whole long summer that we still can't play sports again. It's just an idea. They they just feel let down. And I also think it's an opportunity, Executive Curran, to show kids we're going to find a way. You know, when in doubt, you know, you find a way. You do things responsible, but you find a way instead of knuckle under. Your thought?
12: You know, that's such an important lesson. Life throws curveballs at us, no pun intended, as we've seen all year, all 2020. It's been a bunch of curveballs. But I think if we show that we can be nimble, we can show that we can handle it and we can help our kids not only learn important skills on the, on the field, but learn how to be resilient in life because life will throw curveballs at you.
2: And guess what tomorrow is? No one has to tell you 9-11,
12: yeah. uh, New York, yep, that's right.
2: Long Island. So many people lost their parents or a family member either fighting to save people or because they went to work. And we had to come back and explain to second graders and 11th graders that their parents aren't going to be around anymore. And somehow life had to go on and they had to get safety protocols and things were canceled, but they weren't canceled forever. It was back to back to the grind, you know, go back to homework, back to school uh, while learning from our past. And I just think that a lot of people look at you and say, well, she could put everybody back on the field. The way it works, just like the president can't make every governor or mayor do what he wants. You can't make them play.
12: Correct. Correct. But I can have constructive conversations and I can make the case. I can advocate. And that's something that I've been doing. And, you know, you know, it's interesting, Brian, you talk about 9-11. That was a crisis that we faced together and things, life found its balance again it was different the things different things were put in place safety and you know we, i don't have to tell you taking our shoes off at the airport yeah. all of that sort of thing but life does find its balance again and that's something that i think it's so important to teach our kids
2: i heard the governor has not made things easy saying only 10 in a locker room at a time and you got to sanitize the buses how are they going to travel what about those hurdles could the state be more responsive and more practical
12: You know, I think the fact that we are able to get kids back to school, that involves social distancing, that involves masks, that involves timing, uh, transportation, all of those things have been put into place for school. And I understand that, you know, a lot of superintendents are concerned that there's just too much to do. Uh, but I think, you know, once get school gets started, we can, we can look at how we can make it work. We've made so many things work. They're different, but they're working. And I think we can make this work as well.
2: And what will be the next step to see if you're successful?
12: Continuing to have the conversations and making the case, Um, I really appreciate you having me on the show so I can talk about it to a wider audience. Uh, Making the case and doing it in a respectful way, and of course, you know, using facts, not 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 um, you know chest thumping and hyperbole, but just let's be reasonable. Let's use a common sense approach and see if we can make this work.
2: And I will say, from practical experience, I was never a great athlete, but I'm still friends with those players I played in high school with today, and it's been a long time since 1982. And those are the friendships that could be solidified or begin to fracture, and that's what's at stake. It's really not the championship, and I think you get that. And
12: it's true, even for the—I wasn't ever the best athlete either. But you learn about cooperation, you learn teamwork, you learn how to win, and more important than that, you learn how to lose with a little bit of grace.
2: Laura Curran, I hope you win this Nassau County executive. Thanks so much for joining us.
12: Thank you. Bye bye.
8: From the Fox News Podcasts Network, download and listen to The Untold Story with Martha McCallum. The host of The Story on Fox News Channel sits down with major newsmakers each week to get their untold story. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.
1: Information you want. Truth you demand. This is The Brian Kilmeade Show.
4: I'm really excited about Joe Biden. I think he's going to be a great president. I never saw any hatred coming uh, from Kamala Harris, and neither did the president. But he's always projecting his negative attitudes uh, onto other people. But it won't be long. In eight weeks, we'll be celebrating uh, the election of Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, a Democratic Senate, a strengthened Democratic House of Representatives.
2: Nancy Pelosi predicting a blue wave, and that's been the goal all along. But she did reveal herself when she said, when asked about impeachment, she says we've been trying to do it for 20-plus months, and that struck a chord with Byron York. And it's part of the reason that's included in his book. It's His book is called Obsession Inside the Washington uh, Establishment's Never-Ending War on Trump. He's a Fox News contributor, Washington Examiner, chief political correspondent, and a great contributor to the show. Byron, congratulations on the book. When did you realize you had to write this?
7: It was sometime uh, during uh, impeachment, and that minute that what you just mentioned, it was on. It was in December of 2019, which amazingly enough is not even a year ago. And House Democrats were rushing; they were in a hurry to impeach the president by Christmas. And a reporter asked Nancy Pelosi, what's the hurry? What's the rush here? And she said, there's no rush here. This has been going on for two and a half years since uh, Mueller was appointed. And a lot of Republicans listened up at that moment, and they thought, yes, she's finally admitted it. This impeachment is not about Ukraine. It's not about a phone call. It's a continuation of their continuing, never-ending effort to remove the president." From office.
2: So why is it different from the Democrats' dis-hate, uh, the dismissal of George Bush? Why is it different than Ronald you know, Reagan? That's a,
7: that's a good question. Uh, you know, with, with Bush, there was an enormous amount of uh, opposition to the Iraq War. Uh, but Bush didn't lose the, uh, his midterms in 2002. That was right after September 11th. And he didn't lose the House, unlike Bill Clinton, unlike Barack Obama, and unlike Donald Trump. So he did not have the opposition party. And I think one of the things I talk about in the book is Democrats first started talking about impeachment. Uh, very early in the Trump presidency, uh, Robert Mueller was appointed on May 17, 2017. Most people don't know that that very day was the first formal call from, for impeachment uh, from a Democrat on the House floor. So it, it had been it had been going on for a very long time, and with um, with Bush. He didn't lose to the opposition party, and there were some some people like John Conyers, a senior Democrat at the time, who did want to impeach George W. Bush, but never happened. I think the opposition to Donald Trump has been emotional, out there, hair on fire, of a different type that we saw with Bush.
2: If it was anything but Donald Trump's personality of take on all comers, don't don't leave any uh, punch unanswered, Do you think they would have been just left by now, find out a way to just to bow out of this because of the constant pressure?
7: I don't know. They uh, they they were extremely they, they never reconciled themselves to losing the 2016 election. There's just just no doubt about that. And, you know, there was that famous Washington Post story. Um, and it said the effort to impeach President Trump has begun, and it was posted on the Washington Post website at 12:19 p.m. on January twentieth, uh, 2017. That is, Trump had been president for 19 minutes at that point. So this has been going on um, a very long time. And one of the extraordinary things that we see is in this book is you know uh, Democrats are determined to impeach. Trump over Russia. They've won the House. They're going to impeach him over Russia. Then the Mueller report comes out, and it's a bit of a dud. Mueller cannot establish that collusion ever happened, and that was the key thing he was supposed to investigate. But Democrats didn't give up. They wanted Mueller to come uh, testify in Congress, and they thought that could give them a Watergate moment, and it'd be really dramatic, and that would convince everybody to remove Trump from office. And that was a disaster, But they still didn't give up. And what what happened was, after the Mueller testimony, a lot of Republicans kind of let their guard down. They relaxed. They thought, wow, finally this long Russia ordeal is over. Um, But they didn't know that at that very moment, Adam Schiff was working on a new plan, uh, what would involve a whistleblower and the whole Ukraine uh, allegation. So they have been incredibly resourceful and persistent in doing this.
2: No question. And that's where the matter of weeks, you heard about the Ukraine call. And then by August, you heard about uh, uh, whistleblowers. And next thing you know, impeachment hits traction. And that led, just like Clinton's impeachment uh, led to ignoring al-Qaeda, uh, that led to possibly people distrusting the whole push with the pandemic. They're like, here we go again. They're trying to say that I missed the pandemic. They're, instead of focusing on the pandemic and the country it was, let's go play politics with everything. We're even seeing it with the vaccine today. We see it with hydroxychloroquine. If Trump likes it, he can't possibly be good, even though it is actually helping
6: people.
7: You know, it's, it's interesting these conversations about the early days of coronavirus and Joe Biden, you know, writing an op-ed and at the very end of January, and the president stopping China travel at the very end of January, talking to Woodward in the first week of February. I mean, what's amazing about that was was anything happening during that time? There was an impeachment trial yeah. of the president in the Senate, and it was supposedly. The biggest deal in a million years, and it was going to uh, it was going to sink President Trump's chances for re-election. It was the biggest thing in the world. And then we all know the Democrats recently had their virtual convention; they had four days to talk and talk and talk, and they never even mentioned impeachment.
2: Uh, right. And then Joe Biden coming out yesterday and saying the president lied. The president lied. I just want everyone to understand that Joe Biden. After the president evidently lied, which he didn't lie, when he said he wanted to play it down on the 31st of January, he actually comes out and he stops travel to China. And here's what Joe Biden said the very same day, cut 16.
3: The American people need to have a president who they can trust what he says about it, that he is going to act rationally about it. This is no time for Donald Trump's record of hysteria, xenophobia, hysterical xenophobia, to uh and fear mongering to lead the way instead of science
2: and science is what was leading the way to the president offering the ban. Why is he not being very, held accountable
7: that's, for that yeah, that 's the very end of january and uh, when uh, when Biden says that in reaction to trump 's China move and you know go to the internet. <laughs> and look up pictures of Biden rallies. There's one in Detroit on March the 9th. It's an old-fashioned rally that we used to have before all this coronavirus stuff. People packed together, and um, nobody's observing any, uh, any precautions because they, they don't even know about coronavirus, or they don't think it's a problem at that time. So Biden has continued to hold rallies. I think he, the last one was on March the 10th. And if you remember... Just a couple of days ago, Peter Ducey asked Biden this question. He said, you know, if you if you issued this warning and you knew how serious coronavirus was so early on, why did you keep holding rallies into March? And Biden's answer was just pure sophistry. He had no good answer for that at all.
2: Uh, we're talking to uh, Byron York. His book Obsession is out. And Byron, just so people get an understanding, you mentioned in December right away the the case for impeachment begins. But to be specific, Jill Stein contended some of the uh, wanted uh, asked for a recount. Remember the Russia story happened almost immediately. They were trying to get delegates not to report on the uh, for the uh, for the uh, the, electoral, the electoral the electoral college. Column. You so know, they I did, tell that
7: story in the yeah. book. There's an interesting moment in and And Joe Biden's uh, in the middle of it. Yeah. They The Democrats, you know, cannot reconcile themselves to Trump's victory. And uh, before election day, uh, before inauguration day, of course, I believe on January the 6th, 2017, Congress meets and they certify the results of the Electoral College. And this is supposed to be just a ceremony, okay? It's a done deal. It's a ceremony. And the Senate comes over to the House chamber and uh, people say that, well, the delegates from the great state of Arkansas are all in order and they're blank, blank, blank. And what surprised Republicans is Democrats had a plan to disrupt that, and they challenged the electoral college uh, electors from several states on the basis that Russia had helped Trump win the election. And here again, this is a... This is historically, traditionally a ceremony that people go through, go to, and it's kind of a happy event. And Republicans, I think, first got the sense – it was kind of like the chandelier tinkling on the, on the Titanic. They first got the sense that something is going on here, and Democrats are much more agitated, much angrier, and much more determined to act. Than they ever really suspected,
2: and it was Joe Biden saying, "You have to have a senator contest the, the electoral college, not a congressman." And he gavels he's like, move on. And yeah, you, Joe you Biden, talk about, by the way, yeah. was
7: the was the sitting vice president at the time, and yeah. he was the presiding officer over this certification of Donald Trump's electoral victory. And and, and as per the rules, he had to uh, strike down each of these objections. And at the end, when when it's finally over and Trump is actually declared the president, the winner of the electoral college, um, Biden slams down the gavel and looks over and Paul Ryan, the Speaker of the House, is kind of laughing and Biden says, God save the queen. I don't know what he meant by that, um, but uh, it was clearly had been a kind of a tense and crazy moment that everybody had thought was just going to be routine.
2: And you remember the boycott of the inaugural, I remember the crowd, yeah. which was self-inflicted—the crowd issue—and next thing you know, I would love to have. Just, all I said, and and my and everybody here is tired of me saying it. I just want to see him president when the issues are the biggest challenge. We never—it's always a personal attack, some type of thing that keeps keeps President Trump from going straight down the road of being president.
7: Yeah, well, the the electorate is really divided between people who look at what Trump has done. They look at judges, they look at regulation, they look at taxes, they look at defense spending, and they they support all that, and they don't look at the hair on fire controversy of the day. Um, That people who today, the Woodward book is more important than anything. And last week, the Atlantic article was more important than anything. And the week before that, the post office was more important than anything. So um, it's just a difference in approach. There are people who just get excited by whatever the, 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 the story of the day is. And there are people who have kind of a more balanced perspective and see, well, what has President Trump done And how has it affected my life?
2: And just going through your book, it just reminds me and it's just I shouldn't have to be reminded of everything that we've been through and what the president has been through directly. Hey, listen, some of it is self-inflicted. Some of it is sloppiness going through protocol, not throwing through communications and doing things the Trump way. But this leads us all up to today, Byron. You remember when George Allen said vacata and it destroyed his candidacy. You remember when the president's reaction to Katrina never really allowed him to have a true second term, where his approval never went past thirty-one percent. And you, after it got a little bit better, and then of course he had the crash of the economy. Why is it that no matter what Trump does and what they do, he's always around forty-two to forty-four percent approval, and no one thinks he does not have a chance of winning four more years? What well, is it about this president?
7: His base support has been unbelievably stable. If you look at uh, his the real clear politics average of his job approval from the beginning all the way now, it's never been higher than 46, even at the beginning. I think he hit 47 one time. Uh, never been higher. Than that never been lower than about 38. And it's exactly what you're saying. It's mostly around 42%. Now, 42% is kind of on the line of a president who's going to get reelected. Uh, if it were higher, the chances would be quite great that he'd be reelected. So as it is, it's not entirely clear. But what it shows is that he has a real floor under his support. You know, when when Bush. You mentioned George W. Bush. The Iraq War just just went terribly wrong. And then the economy, just as one said, person said, just rolled off the edge of the table. Um, and by the end, Bush had support in the 20s, meaning he had lost a lot of his base support. They were, that, they were just finished with him. And that has not happened to Trump. And so that, that job support number is very, very – job approval number is very important to him.
2: Lastly, how will the, how much will the Woodward book hurt him?
7: You know, I have to think that it's probably the controversy of the day and, you know, what was last week's controversy of the day and the week before and the week before and the week before. Uh, On the other hand, there's one thing about it, which is that the president submitted to all of these uh, recorded interviews, so that's going to show up in ads. I mean, Democrats are going to use his voice in ads, and maybe they'll play it out of context, Um, and they can do that because Trump uh, submitted, agreed to do these 18 different recorded conversations with Bob Woodward.
2: Yeah, he did. And, of course, Woodward will be on 60 Minutes on Sunday. They don't do the book tour for a couple of weeks. But everybody knows the best book out is Obsession.
13: So, Thank you.
2: So go get Byron York's book. He put more work into it. And uh, he lived it. He didn't need to record somebody else. Byron, thanks so much.
7: Thanks so much, Brian.
2: You got it. one 408 7669 Back
8: with you. It's Brian Kilmeade. Fox Nation presents Podcasts, Women of the Bible Speak.
12: I'm Shannon Bream, host of Fox News at Night and author of the new book, Women of the Bible Speak, the wisdom of 16 women and their lessons for today. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you download your podcasts.
1: From his mouth to your ears, it's Brian Kilmeade.
3: A restaurant is not just the restaurant owner. The restaurant uh, is the kitchen staff, the wait staff. Uh, There's a whole industry around restaurants. And uh, restaurants also pose a possible risk, right? Concentrations of people inside, indoor dining. But there's also a great economic loss when they don't operate.
2: How about 25,000 eateries and 300,000 workers? Now he's showing compassion for people that you've been destroying since February of 2020. That is Governor Cuomo saying, we're going to allow indoor dining in three weeks, 25%. Listen, it's better than nothing. It shows he's actually listening, but it also shows how volatile he is and how ill-thought-out this is. The day before, he's saying it's not going to happen. Alec listening in Illinois. Hey, Alec. Hey Brian, how's it going? Good, good. What do you think of this Woodward book? Does it have legs?
11: It
13: might. You know, one one thing I'm really um, struggling with is that I don't understand why Lindsey Graham or Trump would think it's a good idea to interview with this guy. Did they not? Were they not aware of the last book?
2: I I agree, but the thought was when Trump said I would have talked to you if I knew about it. Lindsey Graham says, "Listen, get your point of view out. He's going to write it anyway." But to go eighteen interviews for nine hours what could be good about that I mean I wouldn't oh, do that incredible. with a friendly I mean, biographer gonna,
13: yeah I mean if anything why not just commit to a you know written answers like you did for the Mueller report yeah
2: that would have been better
13: have more control
2: absolutely uh, he says stuff like Kim jong-un uh, the guy is like in awe of him and he hated Obama He went on, you heard some of those talks about race. You hear in there that Mattis never liked him and slept in his clothes because he thought North Korea was going to get bombed in the middle of the night and he'd have to get up and declare a war. Um, I I don't know where this comes from. Uh, Dan Coats all of a sudden speaks up and says Vladimir Putin must have something on Trump. So that's all in the book. But I have news for you. It would have been in the book anyway, whether he cooperated or not. But it would have bombed like the last one. This one's going to last a while because Trump's in it. And as Byron New York said, they're going to be using those tapes in adversarial ads. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. Keep it here. Go to or Order the podcast from anywhere and everywhere.
8: From the Fox News Podcasts Network. Download and listen to The One with Craig Gutfeld, the co host of The Five, like you've never heard him before. You know him. You love him. You want to be like him. Subscribe and listen now by going to FoxNewsPodcasts.com. <laughs> Live from the Fox News Radio
1: studios in New York City, fresh off the set of Fox and Friends, it's America's receptive voice, Brian Welcome Kilmeade. To Welcome to the latest moments
8: of the
2: Brian Kilmeade Show. Sarah Huckabee Sanders will be with us shortly. Then we're going to be joined by Jeff Benedict at the bottom of the hour. He's got a book out. Uh, Now with the the dynasty, it's about the New England Patriots and the true stories. Great investigative reporter. And, of course, Sarah Sanders, uh, Fox News contributor, former White House press secretary and author of a brand new book, Speaking for Myself. uh, The president's going to be out and about today. He does not take a day off. Uh, where Joe Biden is pretty much on an every other day schedule, where he doesn't really meet people or take any questions. But in many of these battleground states, he is in fact leading. Everyone's talking about the Bob Woodward book right now, uh, and a person that lives a lot of it that 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 I guess Bob Woodward chronicled his first book, Fear. This book is now out, Cold Rage. First, uh, we'll discuss it. Let's get to the big three
1: now with the stories you need to, to know, know. It's Brian's Big Three.
3: Number three. American manufacturing, is the old expression you heard your grandpop say and grandmother, was the arsenal of democracy in World War II. Well, guess what? It's going to be part of the engine of American prosperity
2: now. Right, because after 47 years, I finally had a great idea, and it's Donald Trump's. You would think somebody who's been accused and proven to be a plagiarist and an exaggerator would not go ahead and take the Trump doctrine, but when it comes to manufacturing, that's what he tried to do yesterday.
4: Number two. Come to Chinatown. Here we are. We're, again, careful, safe, and come join us.
2: Yeah, February 2020. She seemed pretty impervious there in San Francisco. Say, so go to Chinatown. The reality and timeline of the virus. Why the press hyperventilates? Uh, let's go over exactly what was said and when it was said, as it as it relates to the COVID 19.
4: Number one. Well,
5: I think Bob really, to be honest with sure, you. Sure, I want you to. I be. wanted to. Uh, I wanted to always play it down. I still like playing it down. Yes, yeah, sir. Because I don't want to create a panic.
2: That's the president's choice. Uh, and we're going to go over the timeline. Woodward strikes again. President Trump spent nine hours, 18 interviews with Bob Woodward, who will spend the next five days qualifying with the next page with the next pages uh, and the recordings reveal from nuclear attack plans to covid action uh, and different approaches. We'll give you all sides. Uh, meanwhile, uh, I've been reading her book, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, Fox News contributor. She joins us now. Sarah, welcome.
14: Thank you, Brian. Always great to be with you. I appreciate you yeah, having me on.
2: Congratulations on the book. A lot of personal stories you don't get unless you lived it. Uh, and you did live it behind the scenes while still trying to raise your family and and and, and have a great marriage. Not easy. And dealing with the press, almost impossible. Uh, first off, <laughs> would we, if uh, it was pretty clear, Mark Meadows made it clear, he said, I never would have recommended the president sit down with Bob Woodward. Would you have?
14: No, I wouldn't have. And if I did, it wouldn't have been for an extended amount of time, but You know, one of the things I do love about this president is he is so accessible and he takes more questions from the media than any president in history. I wish Joe Biden would take at least a couple of the questions that President Trump takes so we actually know what he would do as president, um, like we do with Donald Trump. You can't argue that you don't know where he is on a particular matter at any given moment, because if it's not through him taking questions from reporters on a daily basis or giving Speeches, uh, he's tweeting. And so you always know where he is and what he's thinking.
2: So here's what Dana Perino said about the Woodward books. Because if you look at the one on President Obama, it is not flattering either. Cut 33.
9: When I was in the Bush administration, Bob Woodward wrote, I think, four or five books. um, And we would alternate on one you wouldn't cooperate. Turned out bad. Next one, you'd cooperate. Still turned out bad. Third one, I mean, you just, you tried to figure out a way to handle it. The first Woodward book that came out, Rage, uh, it got a lot of negative press for President Bush. Of course, they overcame that. But all of that was anonymous sources, right? You kind of figured out who they were, but it was anonymous. So what do they decide to do this time? Why not have, have the president himself talk to Bob Woodward and do it? And Now, here's the thing. The fact that he does it on tape and that you hear the president saying that, that will be used a lot by his opponents.
2: You agree with that?
9: I I do. And I,
14: I think that Bob Woodward has a formula and any president that comes behind this one should pay attention. He's going to write a negative book because that's how he makes money, and that's what that's about. And I think that um, one of the reasons that I wanted to write the book that I did is because I actually spent – I didn't need to have tapes or nine hours of interviews. I spent every day for two and a half years by the president's side. I know who he is at his heart. I know why he does the job he does, and I know that he's fighting for America every single day because I experienced it firsthand. And I would much rather take the account of that than the account of somebody who got a few hours on tape with the president and cobbled them together to make it as bad as possible.
2: Right. And I read your book, and also I know how much respect he has for you. And I remember when you said "I want you're controlling your dad's campaign, and he didn't get the nomination, and you were crushed. But you got the second best thing. Uh, You got a chance to work with uh, President Trump, the future president of the United States, and see him in action and then take over as press secretary, and you really— Uh, You really impressed him from day one. He thought you were a killer and couldn't be stopped. and, And I never really saw you stumped in there. But the one thing that I'm struck by is not so much Chuck Schumer ridiculing the president. That's a daily basis, something disparaging from Nancy Pelosi. That happens every minute. But when General Mattis said the president has no moral compass, did you find that surprising?
14: I did, particularly given that I I saw the president's moral compass. I saw the president um, in, in many moments show his heart, even show some vulnerability when he had to make calls to offer condolence to families who had lost a son in Afghanistan. I saw the emotional toll that it took on the president when he did that. I saw um, a president who loves our country, loves our military. He wants to bring our military home because he's tired of fighting in endless wars um, that other people got the country into. And so to hear that from General Mattis is surprising, but I know that they differed on a lot of issues. Uh, They fundamentally disagreed on how we should interact on a number of fronts. And um, I don't think that means you don't have a moral compass. I think that just means you disagree sometimes. And so I was surprised to hear that.
2: And Dan Coats came out and said Vladimir Putin has something on – Uh, Donald Trump I don't know what it is were you surprised at that former director of national intelligence
14: (laughs) if 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 there was something that Putin had, we would know what it is. They spent more than two years uh, of wasted taxpayer time and money trying to find something to take this president down in connection to Russia. They couldn't find it. I can assure you the Clintons would have found it in 16, um, and Mueller and Adam Schiff and all of the band of crazy liberal Democrats would have found something if it existed. The truth is, it didn't. This has become a total witch hunt, a total distraction from what really matters in this country. And despite the fact that they spent two years attacking this president, falsely accusing him for the sin of winning an election, he still managed to get a lot done. The the fact that he was still able to pass uh, historic tax cuts, rebuild our military, help with the defeat and destruction of the ISIS caliphate, make America energy independent, and the list goes on and on. While all of that was happening, I think that shows who's there to get a job done and who's there to play political games and that political gamesmanship is being led by the liberal left.
2: I understand that. What made you leave when you wanted when you did leave?
14: In large part, um, I have three young kids. They are now eight, six and five. And after two and a half years in the White House and a year on the campaign, um, it was time for me to get to spend a lot more time with my family. Um, There are several people that will come behind me and, and many that can fill the role as White House press secretary, but only one person can be mom to my kids. And it was important for me to be able to take that step back and spend that time uh, with my kids while they 're at that young age, while they still like me, Brian, before they turn into teenagers and don 't want to be seen with me in public, I wanted to uh make sure I had that time and really got to invest in that those moments
2: well, I know you it's going to be very hard to rattle if your kids are going to try to get under your skin you 're not going to budge i 've already seen you in action um that 's pretty that 's pretty clear, but they yeah they still do like you at that age i can 't really i really don 't know what to say about now. I still have two teenagers. Um but let me let me ask you about this president. This is what's different about this president. It's usually communications uh, helps set up and map out a presidency. This we're gonna push today with the campaign and with the White House. Too different, I get it. But a lot of times you play defense. This is what the presidents do. This is what the president just did or tweeted, and now we gotta respond to it or build on it. Can you bring us inside that when you, inside the process, when you look up and you see a tweet that you know is going to create a lot of friction or news?
14: Well, depending, you know, sometimes because I've spent so much time with the president, a lot of times those tweets might not surprise you because he's been talking about a particular issue or topic. Um, And so you'll see that come out and you already have a sense of where he is on the matter. There there are moments where he'll put one out that you weren't quite expecting and weren't really ready for. And usually the first thing I do is pick up the phone and call the president and get clarity because I want to understand my job is to speak on behalf of the president in that moment when I was at the White House. Um, No one had elected me to anything as White House press secretary. They had elected Donald Trump. And my job was to go out and communicate his agenda and spread his message. And so I had to have clarity to make sure I could do that effectively. So that was always my first thing. If I didn't know, I would reach out to the president to make sure I had the best understanding possible so that I could communicate on his behalf effectively. (laughs)
2: <laughs> Have you ever talked him out of a tweet that was about to make your life miserable?
14: <laughs> a couple times. Now I won't ever tell you what they are, but a few times <laughs> a few times I've I've won that battle. Would and I... a few times I won it in the moment only for a couple days later to see it to see it come across my screen.
2: So would Dan Scavino be an ally with, with you on that? I mean, do you go sometimes go, Dan, if he tries to put this up, help me here?
14: Absolutely. Dan Scavino is uh, one of the um, best and brightest people in that building. He is such a devoted uh, worker and just a really great American and a great person and somebody I'm proud to call my friend. And we uh, got to fight alongside each other in the trenches and somebody who you definitely want on your side.
2: So you remember what it was like in the backstretch against Hillary Clinton in September of an uh, election in November compare the two?
14: Well, um, I think one of the big moments in the 2016 election when the president was up against Hillary Clinton were the debates, and I think that's going to prove true again in 2020. Um, the president had a standout performance. I think a lot of people had counted him out near October, and his debate formats really turns things around and put him back control of the narrative. And um, I think that you'll see a important moment in 2020 take place when both President Trump and Vice President Biden take the debate stage and people have a chance to see the real contrast between the two candidates on stage for the very first time.
2: But the hard part is, is that Joe Biden has backed off things that he has said in the primary. Where, you know, now he's against the riots. Now he's against, now he says, I'm not going to ban fracking. Uh, now he says, um, uh, when it comes to uh, the wall, I'm not taking down the wall. I'm not decriminalize border crossing. So a lot of the stuff that he said, I'm not going to get rid of fossil fuels. So a lot of the stuff he said earlier, he's reversed himself on. That's going to be the challenge for the president.
14: Except for there's nobody better at calling somebody out and holding their feet to the fire than Donald Trump. He's not the guy you want to be in a street fight with, and I think that's exactly what this debate will look like. I think it'll be a street fight, and Donald Trump has proven – when it comes to that moment, he rises to the occasion and does very well. At the same time, I don't want to underestimate Joe Biden. He's been a politician and been in office for almost 50 years. You don't do that without, um, you know, having these kind of moments that you need. He certainly survived a very tough and crowded Democrat field. So I don't want to underestimate him and count him out. But I think Donald Trump is is a a great street fighter and will certainly hold Joe Biden's feet to the fire on a lot of his past comments and statements that he's made. And on his record, don't forget, it's not just about what he said, but it's about what he's done. And there are so many moments in his 47 years uh, in office that the president can point to where he has been a failure for the American people.
2: Uh, There is. And I think that he is way off his game right now. The name of your book, uh, Is called speaking for myself. Uh, but lastly, I heard that in the communications department, uh, they are hope they were hoping the president would have recorded on his end the Woodward conversation, so they'd be more prepared for Sunday. What's going on, right? Bring us inside the press room. Whether you know directly or you can speculate, what's going on? Knowing that all these tapes are out there.
14: Well, I I think the important part is uh, to remind people of what the president has done. I think he's had an incredibly strong almost four years in office, and they should point back to those moments where the president um, has done great things for the American people. I think it's hard to argue with the substance of what the president has delivered on. A lot of people may not like his style, uh, but he's done a tremendous job as president and has a great record of accomplishment. I think they should lean heavily on that. Um, Again, I spent two and a half years with the president. I don't have to listen to uh, or read Bob Woodward's book to know who he is or what he's about. I've done that. um, And I think I have a, a much more authoritative version in my book. I would I would encourage the press office to, to read my version instead of Bob Woodward's. But I think they're doing what they would do uh, for any other big moment for them, and that's Um, being prepared for every scenario and knowing that both Bob Woodward and other members of the media are going to paint anything the president said in the worst light possible, because that's what they do every single day. And I don't think this will be any different.
2: Speaking for myself is Sarah Huckabee Sanders. That's the name of her book. Go get it. The president endorsed it, retweeted it. That should not surprise you. Sarah, thanks so much. Talk to you soon.
14: You bet. Thank you so much,
1: Brian. You got it. Uh, Back in a moment. Newsmakers and Newsbreakers.
8: Hear it first, only on The Brian Kilmeade Show. Living the Bream is a podcast hosted by Fox News Channel's Shannon Bream, sharing inspirational stories, personal anecdotes, and an insider's perspective on actions and rulings from the high court. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America's listening to Fox News.
1: A talk show that's real. This is The Brian Kilmeade Show.
2: Hey, let's go out to Adam. Let's listen to WABC. Hey, Adam.
15: Brian, good morning. Just want to say thanks again. That was a great interview with Sarah. She had the uh, uh, thankless job of standing up for the president in, in this uh, time of media Postal. bias. But yeah. A very hostile environment. So about the way information is spreading, right? It's like fire. So today, Officer Tao Tao and Thomas Lane have filed motions in July 29th. I believe that 9/11 is tomorrow. That's when those motions will be ruled on. Should those two officers? Who have filed their motions be granted those motions to dismiss all charges due to insufficient evidence as accessories to murder two. that information will hit the four o'clock news here we'll have riots by night what is the mayor of this city doing perhaps you could do something like if you have to hold signs or you want to chant and protest you can do it here if you're caught outside of there you're subject to stop question and frisk you're caught with a crowbar or a hammer you're getting locked up they need to fix the bail reform instantly. We have a Democratic Assembly, a Democratic Senate, and a Democratic governor. Fix the bail reform, please. What are you doing? Lock Adam, up the he doesn't 30.
2: care. He thinks it's a good thing that Rikers Island is empty. He thinks it's a great thing. He'd rather paint the streets with Black Lives Matter decals than tell his police commissioner to warn the public, uh, stay in line or else. He just is the worst ever, and the governor is no better. Appreciate your time. Yeah, you got to look at this belly for him. It'll really sicken you. Brian Kilmicho, when we come back, Jeff Benedict brings us a side of uh, the New England Patriots we've never seen before football tonight
8: it's the hammer time podcast fox news channels bill hammer takes you one-on-one with engaging personalities covering the critical issues of the day find hammer time now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com america's listening to fox news
1: a radio show like no other it's brian kilmeade Due
7: to the various uncertainties surrounding my position as it relates to the team's new ownership, um, I've decided to resign as the head coach of the New York Jets.
2: And just like that, Bill Belichick decides to go to New England. Really, even though his mentor, Bill Parcells, appointed him coach of the New York Jets. He felt Bill Parcells was going to look over his shoulder. Belichick goes to New England, where Pete Carroll had just failed, and Bill Parcells left, left with great angst. He's going to fail there, Right. Nope. Uh, He created the greatest dynasty in NFL history, along with this guy named Tom Brady and the great ownership of Robert Kraft. That is chronicled in a book that is out now this week called Now with the Dynasty, Jeff Benedict. Hey, Jeff. Hey, it's good to be back on. Congratulations. Why'd you tackle this topic?
13: Uh, You know, coming off the Tiger Woods book, I I was really just interested in looking at what I think is the greatest sports dynasty of the 21st century uh, in all sports, not just football, and wanting to know two things, really. One, how did they build this winning machine? And then perhaps more importantly, how did they sustain it for so much longer than any preceding dynasty in football?
2: And it's not like they loved each other. I mean, Brady likes Kraft. I have no idea who Belichick likes, but Kraft likes Brady, and now it's gone. So where does Belichick stand? Does Belichick and Brady like each other? You know, I think here's
13: the thing that's interesting and that's always been lost in this, and I think it really comes out in the the dynasty, is that Brady's relationship with Kraft is more like father-son. It's a familial relationship, and it's been that way for 20 years. Belichick's relationship with Kraft is not like that, but they they have this, what I think is the most efficient relationship in all of sports between an owner and a coach. And then you've got Brady and Belichick, who were who not close in a in a friendly or familial way. The one place where they they made magic was when they were at work at the stadium in on the field. And I think the genius of Kraft, and, and this is the part that's always been missing in the story, is he recognized early on that he basically had the two Beatles on his payroll. And it for him it became all about how to keep them married, how to extend the marriage, how to keep them both in New England for as long as possible, and he did it for 20 years. It's longer than any quarterback coach tandem in the history of the NFL.
2: So how, did they cooperate with you, all three? Yes,
13: Um, and and to different levels, but I was able to interview all three of them. And in the case of Kraft, I did a lot of following and observing him uh, doing his job as an owner. Uh, In addition to the interviews with Brady, those were some of the best interviews that I've done in my career. Not just amongst athletes, but everyone. And in Belichick's case, true to form, um, you know, he did his interviews with me in writing, uh, meaning I submitted the questions to him in writing and he replied in writing. And the truth was, his answers were, as you would expect, thoughtful, well thought out and uh, you know, shed light on some areas that I think he's, you know, hasn't necessarily talked about
2: before. It's amazing because it takes a lot more time to answer your questions in writing than you go over it a million times. I, I guess he's being really careful. It, it kind of makes sense in, in a way, although his his success is already established. Here's Tom Brady talking, I believe, with Howard Stern about Belichick. Cut eight.
3: To me, he's the greatest coach of all time, and hes he just does the best job with our team. He gets us ready to go every week, puts us in a great position to succeed. He's just a great coach. He's a great motivator. You know, he doesn't take any days off, and he sets a great example for us about uh, dependability, consistency. You know, he brings it every day, so
8: he's just a great coach.
2: So, there's no doubt about it. He thinks he's a great coach. That was when he was still on the team, but... He never treated Brady like a star. And that kind of even bent, uh, I believe, bent even his teammates uh, had them bent out of shape a little bit, right?
13: Yeah, you know, there's multiple scenes in this book, Brian, where <clears throat> when new players come to town, whether it's Randy Moss coming in as a free agent or someone like Dion Branch who gets drafted, the first time they see and hear Bill Belichick tear into Brady, call him names like Johnny, expletive Foxborough. Uh, demean him in practice, it's a shocking thing. I mean, Randy Moss said it was just like, whoa, what is going on here? It's not what you expect. But Brady put up with that for two decades. And I think, you know, this gets lost in the conversation, but Peyton Manning, John Elway, Dan Marino, none of those guys would have been able to tolerate and put up with what Tom went through. I think the fact that Tom put up with it is what forced everyone else on the roster to get in line behind Tom and put up with it as well. And so if you didn't have a leader like Tom that was willing to basically subdue his own ego and tolerate the way that Belichick coached him, this, this would have never worked.
2: Here is uh, what Brady told Howard Stern. Cut 10.
7: Tom, isn't there some resentment People, on your part that he didn't make you a patriot for life? No, because
1: this is a part for me in my life to experience something very different. And there's ways for me to grow and evolve in a different way that I haven't had the opportunity to do that aren't right or wrong, that's just right for me. Is
2: is he telling the truth there?
13: Oh, I think he is. I I think, you know, Brian, it's easy to forget how long 20 years, a 20-year marriage in football is an eternity. Uh, I mean, it would be akin to like a
2: husband and wife being married for like a hundred years. But Jeff Benedict, he never said goodbye to him. He told Bob Kraft he was leaving. He goes, "It was kind of late. I didn't want to bother the coach."
13: Well, Brian, the the closing scene in my book actually is is when Brady goes to Kraft's house to say goodbye. And I think what people don't know is that while he was there, he also called Belichick from Kraft's house. He made two phone calls that night. He spoke to Kraft in person. This is during COVID. Keep in mind, this was right at the beginning of the pandemic, and these restrictions were in place in Massachusetts. He goes to Kraft's house. They're socially distanced. They make a conference call to Jonathan Kraft, who was in Aspen at the time, and and Tom tells him. And that's sort of a tearful goodbye, because they're like brothers. But then he calls Belichick at home, and he has the the final conversation with Bill. And that's all in the, the last chapter of the book, but it's it's, it's not a hard call. I mean, it's a hard call to make, but it's not an acrimonious goodbye. Most of the time when these partnerships break up, they break up ugly. This one didn't. It, up, it broke up as unusually as the way it lasted for 20 years.
2: Interesting. Uh, He is now uh, in with the Bucs. He's going to be playing against Drew Brees, 39 years old, and he gets a 43-year-old quarterback when they usually have been retired four or five years, so he's already uh, defying logic. And so it's going to be fascinating. Uh, The other story is Bob Kraft. Bob Kraft uh, mentioned to me in one of the breaks time I interviewed him, he said, what you don't understand is how hard it is to – Rotate, juggle those personalities to keep them. Not you can't just compliment them. You can't say, "Bill, keep winning." Yeah. Anything you need, I'll be there. At the same time, yeah. keep pressing Brady to be better and keep pressing Belichick to be better, and make sure they work together. And he just kind of just said that. He goes, "No one really appreciates how hard that is." Did that come out?
13: Absolutely. I. This is something I, to me. This is the secret sauce. Of this dynasty, yes, Brady and Belichick's roles were huge and can't be overstated. But Kraft's role is the behind-the-scenes; the the, it's the thing you can't see. In fact, I put it this way, Brian: one of the people I interviewed for this book actually was Rupert Murdoch, largely because of all the television contracts that he's negotiated with Kraft and the NFL, Fox. When I was interviewing uh, Rupert, one thing he said to me is, he said, "Look, if Robert Kraft had gone into politics," He would have probably gone down in American history as one of the country's greatest diplomats, but instead he went into sports and he used those diplomacy skills to manage the relationship between Belichick and Brady, the two biggest stars in the league for the last two decades. I think that that really does sort of succinctly say what Kraft had to do, especially in the last 10 years when they went to five more Super Bowls and won three.
2: So, Bill, 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 Bill Parcells, they were the worst team in the league. Steve Grogan, their quarterback forever. Bob Kraft, a fan, becomes successful, finds a way to buy the team. He moves him. They build a stadium. Uh, they got to the Super Bowl. They lose to the Packers on special teams is really the reason. Bill Parcells ends up stepping out acrimoniously. He said, if you want me to... If you want me to cook the meal, I got to buy the groceries. And he leaves. <laughs> they get Pete Carroll, their five hundred team. They get Bill Belichick. Belichick's off to a, a, a 50-50 start, and his star quarterback uh, gets hit by Mo Lewis, uh, and and he rips his uh, spleen or something, some body organ. And in comes this guy named Yeah. Of uh, this guy come? Tom Brady, and he holds the job. And the year is to, it's right after nine eleven. And this is without a week off between games. I remember I interviewed Rudy Giuliani from New Orleans. This is how that game ended. Cut five.
8: Seven seconds. They got venetarian range. I tell you what, Tom Brady just did gives me goosebumps. Here comes one of greater importance. If he makes it, and it's right down the pipe.
2: In one of the greatest upsets of Super Bowl history, underrated because they got so good, but the Rams were coming off a Super Bowl and everyone thought they were unstoppable.
13: Yeah, at the beginning of that game, there was a film crew that was filming the Rams in the end zone and one of the players was bragging about how this was going to be the start of a dynasty. He was right. He just had the wrong team. I mean, nobody expected the Patriots to to build a dynasty or even win that game. I think, Brian, too, if you go back a little earlier in that season, Belichick's decision to play Brady wasn't controversial because Bledsoe was in the hospital with a severed artery bleeding into his lung. He he was medically unable to play. Where it became controversial was seven weeks later when Bledsoe returned. He was the star of the league at that time. He was the highest paid player in the NFL. It was very controversial for Belichick not to put Bledsoe back in the lineup. He stuck with this rookie that at that time was unproven and largely unknown. And I think that that, to me, that's the watershed moment for not just for the Patriots organization, but probably for the NFL, because history changes when Brady stays at the helm and wins that Super Bowl. And then it becomes his team. Bledsoe gets traded to Buffalo and the Patriots are off to the races. So a lot of credit to first of all yep. to Belichick for having the the courage to do it, and for Kraft having the discipline not to intervene to you know put the other quarterback back in.
2: I'm going to bring Jeff Benedict who wrote a great book, a comprehensive book on on the greatest dynasty of my lifetime. Now with uh, now with the dynasty, Jeff Benedict is now out this week. This means so much to me. uh, It's so emblematic of the president, Kraft's relationship with the president, and this team, the Patriots. Here is the end of the greatest comeback in NFL history, uh, in overtime. Falcons, Patriots. Patriots, I think, are trailing twenty-eight to three at halftime. Cut six.
6: Fake it to Hogan. Flip it to White. Looking for blocks. Getting blocks inside the twenty. Out of bounds at the fifteen. On first down. Here's Bennett
7: flag is thrown. Pass interference. Defense. Automatic. First down. It's going to set up first and goal from the two. But that. <laughs> Toss to White. He's in. Patriots win the Super Bowl.
2: Brady has his fifth. The president said he sat in the room by himself because he thought the Patriots were going to come back. Belichick stuck with it. They just adjusted. They didn't panic. means a lot. Kraft uh, and Trump were tight and still are friends. I've seen it uh, over the last three months. It's still very tight. And that, to me, I was in the end zone for that game. Uh, one of the most miraculous things I've ever seen because it's not so much the Falcons failed. The Patriots won.
13: Yeah, that uh, th- there were odds at that time that the chances of them coming back when they were down 28-3 to 3 were something like 99.6% unlikely to happen. And uh, it's interesting that you mentioned the president here, because in the book, I I actually go all the way back to, you know, it's both President Bush Bush's, President Obama and President Trump. This team has made more trips to the White House than any team in NFL history. And to get an appreciation for how long this dynasty has been going, just to kind of give you a sense of time. When you think that the first one was when President Bush was the president right after 9-11, then we go through President Barack Obama, and now we've got President Trump. Historically, this has been happening for a long, long time. That's one of the senses you get from reading the stories. Mm -hmm. This has been going on for two decades is is a long time in sports.
2: Absolutely. And, Jeff, uh, lastly, what about Deflategate? Belichick says, this is on you, Tom, right? You know, I think,
13: look, deflategate is an important part of the dynasty story, but so is Spygate. And if there wasn't Spygate, I I truly believe there never would have been a deflategate. Spygate, they got caught and they acknowledged it and they got a stiff penalty. And deflategate, they didn't really get caught and the league never proved that anybody manipulated balls. And I think in the end, if you saw Belichick's testimony, which I, I have in the book, you know he's pretty clear about saying that Tom didn't do anything here. Tom said that, the team said that, and the league never found any evidence that Tom had. Done he, but it. he did
2: crush his. He did crush his phone. He
13: he had his. Well, he didn't. But the the man. He he had destroyed four or five phones previously to that because he had a policy of doing that every time he got a new phone his sim card and his phone were destroyed for privacy reasons that was made to look bad here but the fact is the league knew that this was a this was something that tom right. had done for years way before any deflate gate and that's not why it was done here it was the reason he didn't turn over his phone here is because he was advised not to because the league was so porous with leaks and the league already had all of his email and text message communications because they had the phone records from the other people that Tom had communicated with. So I always kind of looked at that as a bit bit of a red herring.
2: You do incredible work, whether it's a column or a book. And this, you did it again. Uh, Jeff Benedict, author of Now with the Dynasty, the true story and real story like never seen before of the New England Patriots. Whether you're a Patriot fan or not, you they have been a part of your life. Uh, and I can't wait to see what the next chapter is. Who's going to do better, Brady or Belichick from here on in? Thank, well, I know one thing, you know, Belichick will probably last longer as a coach. Jeff, thanks so much. Congratulations.
1: Thank you, Brian. Back in a moment. You're with Brian Kilmeade. The more you listen, the more you'll know. It's Brian Kilmeade. I hope you don't mind
2: we left Bob Woodward for a little mi- uh, little while. I hope you don't mind we left 2016 and 2020 uh, in our rearview mirror for a little while. I just want to get a chance to take a look at uh, sports tonight in the NFL. A lot of you are riding me. And you're saying, if I see the social justice thing, I am not watching. I'm done. I'm finished. I'm through. According to a Washington Post poll, 6 out of 10 say it's perfectly okay. 56% say it's okay to kneel. Uh, In August, that number, in July of this year, the number was 52, so it's going up. In August of 2018, the number was just 43%. Uh, What you're going to see is two phrases in uh, the game tonight, Kansas City and Texas, and racism. And it takes all of us. I have nothing against those statements. I just think that people do need a break. And we put on our television, we're seeing the protests and riots. And then we put on the NBA and we see Black Lives Matter. And we got some questions about not the phrase, but the organization. And I'm just wondering if the NFL is not hurting a product that America really is counting on for an escape. 43% of Republicans say it's okay to demonstrate. Eighty percent of Democrats, 60 percent of independents. Thanks so much for Sarah Sanders for joining us this hour. Go grab her book, Speaking for Myself, and go grab uh, Jeff Benedict's book, Now with the Dynasty. And don't be afraid to grab Sam Houston, The Alamo Avengers, in honor of the Texans tonight. See if they can beat the mighty Chiefs. Thanks so much for listening. and Keep
8: it here. Brian Kilnichamp.